I think you'd agree with me that um, jealousy is a dreadful sin. And in my experience, uh, it's a very corrosive thing, a cankerous thing, a cancerous thing. Once it gets into a man or a woman, it can eat away like anything. If we get bitten with jealousy, we can be robbed of joy and it can color our whole life. It's a terrible sin. And the Bible speaks against it. James is very uh, clear about it in chapter 4. Uh, I think he uses the word lust. It's translated in the old authorized. But that's what he's talking about. Jealousy leads to fights and quarrels and all sorts of troubles, he said. Well, Therefore, it makes it all the more surprising, does it not, when I read to you just now, and this is my text, when Paul can say to the Corinthians, the second letter, chapter 11, he says in verse 2, I am jealous. I am jealous. Just a minute, Paul, jealous is a terrible thing. But there's some words in the text which change the picture completely. And the two important words are the word, uh, in, in, first of all, in verse 2, when he says, I am jealous for you. He doesn't say, I'm jealous of you. That would be a dreadful thing. But he says, I'm jealous for you. And there's another word which is even more important. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. A divine jealousy, some translations have. I am jealous, not of you. I'm not envious of you, but I'm jealous for you. And my jealousy is not a human or a, a carnal or a satanic jealousy, but it's a godly jealousy. Now, whatever is he talking about? Well, some of you may have thought of it immediately. Do you remember in the second commandment of when God gave the Ten Commandments, the, the whole covenant, in fact, the whole uh, law, the whole 613, whatever it is, commandments, the second commandment of the ten says this, that God says to Israel, uh, in the first commandments, there must be no other gods. I'm, I'm just the only one. No, no other god beside me. Certainly no other god before me. No god beside me. I'm not one of many gods. I am the only god. And he says in, uh, in the second commandment that they must not worship any image copy, make any copy of any image or in any way make any idol, whether a physical idol or in, in their minds, whatever it might be. Uh, and God says, because I'm a jealous God, I'm jealous and I'm not going to share anything with another God. This is what he's saying to Israel. That's in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 34, and I think it's verse 14, he is even stronger. 
God says, I am jealousy, and jealousy is my name. Israel was left in no doubt that God was jealous. Jealous for his glory, for his name, for his person, and his position in Israel. No other God. And if you know the history of Israel, as you ought to, I'm afraid the record of the history of Israel is this is where they went badly astray right from the very beginning. Even when God was giving the law to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai, Aaron down in the valley was already forming an idol of the golden calf and so on. And Israel, right from the start, stage started, uh, right from the beginning, they started in a very low position and they went downhill all the way until they, both nations, the north and the south, eventually went into captivity. Uh, now, when we come into the new covenant, the same absolutely applies. Idolatry still runs. Uh, in the human race, and God is still the same. He is still jealous for his name. I, the Lord, change not. God will not share his glory with another. He will not uh, be one of many. Israel could go after Ashtaroth or, you know, Molech or any other, but whatever they did, God was jealous, and it had to be God alone. And it's still the same in 2023. Now, I could digress here and say a lot. I, I mean, idolatry is the number one sin, in fact. Uh, it undergirds everything. It's offensive to God. Um, but I want to keep to my text if I can. But this is no... I'll play on words, no idle matter. It's certainly idolatry is a very, very serious thing. So that we understand what we're talking about, Paul gives an example when he writes to the Ephesians. He says, beware of greed, gluttony. Well, that's a pretty common sin today, isn't it? Which is idolatry. That's what Paul says. Anyway, Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm jealous for you with this divine, godly jealousy. What's he talking about? Well, he must be talking about what I've just said to you. He is worried sick, and that's the truth about it. He says later in this chapter, Something comes on me every day, he said. The care of all the churches. He loses sleep over this. It's costing him his life. He's worried sick about it. What is he worried about? He says, I'm jealous for you. With a godly jealousy. And so that they understand what he means, he uses an illustration. You can see it in the text. Now, the illustration he uses is of a father who has um, espoused his daughter uh, to a man to be married. I have espoused you. Let's get the exact words. I promised you, I espoused, I promised you uh, uh, to one husband, to Christ, 
so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Uh, now, this illustration actually uh, breaks down today. Um, in this room this morning, with those of us of a certain age, uh, I think we'll understand what he's talking about. But if I was in a young people's group, many of them wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about. Well, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me explain. When I was 18 or 19, and that was a few years ago now, I would have understood this illustration better than the 18-year-old, 18, 19-year-old today. In those days, I was uh, engaged to be married to uh, a young lady, and the whole concept was that this was one man, one young girl, and we were being kept for one another uh, in innocency, naivety, you might say today, but in purity, devotion to one another. And the vows we made were all made to um, enforce this, you know, keep us unto each other and all the rest of it. Forsaking all other. Now, I believe today, uh, I don't know, but my guess is that quite a few um, have been living together months, if not years, before they ever even think about getting married. I mean, it, it, the picture dies away. The picture fades. And, of course, going back to the 50s and 60s when I was young, uh, that was a very small, pale, insignificant uh, illustration because Paul was writing 2,000 years before. And there, the, the, it would seem from what I'm reading here, the conditions are much stricter and tighter. This is a very important thing. This woman, this man, were for each other, and that's the end of it. That's his illustration. I'm jealous for you, he said, because if you can imagine that I'm finding out that my daughter, who was promised to this man, and it was all going lovely, not just the social affairs of the wedding, but all the wonderful things that were intended by that marriage is all gone to pieces because she's playing the fool with somebody else. You can see how grieved he is, how upset he is. What he's saying to these believers is, dropping the illustration, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow have been led astray. When I left you, I saw you were converted to Christ. That's why I came to Corinth. That's what my life is about. I go around preaching so that I can see pagans converted. And I saw you converted at Corinth. Now what am I finding out? You're going away from Christ. Your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he tells them he knows how it's happened. Some men have come there to Corinth, some teachers after us, and they're teaching you, and you're listening to their teaching, and their teaching is very different to what I was teaching you. 
I preached to you the gospel, he said, and you were converted. Now these men have come and they're teaching a different doctrine, a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, and you're buying into it. And this not only upsets him, that's too weak a word, he's not just upset, he's utterly grieved about it. Because as he says to the Galatians, because they were doing the same. That was before the Corinthians. In fact, although it comes after the Corinthians in our Bible, that letter was written to people before the Corinthians. The same had happened up there. And what was it? He said, you're deserting God, the one who called you, deserting him, ratting on him, betraying this covenant that you made, you promised, this marriage covenant. And you're buying into this gospel, which he said, no gospel at all. And the same is happening in Corinth. Hence, he says, the care of all the churches. It happened in Galatia. It's happening here in Corinth. Now, if you know your Bible, you will know it was happening at Antioch. You will know it happened at Jerusalem. You can read that in Acts 15. It was happening at Philippi. You can read that in Philippi chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. It was happening in Rome. You can read of it in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. 6, 7, and 8 particularly. As you will also find it in the Ephesians and the Colossians, and I don't know where you won't find it. What was happening? These teachers, whoever they are, he calls them super apostles here, inverted commas, he doesn't mean that, that's what they call themselves. They say they are the superior teachers. But this man, Paul, looking at them, he takes them on, he tackles them. He does it in Galatia, he does it in uh, the Philippians, as I say, chapter 3. He does it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He does it uh, here, uh, Colossians uh, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you read chapter 2 and 3, you'll see it very clearly. And it comes up again here, uh, and so on. Who, who were these teachers, and, and what were they doing? Well, in short, if you read the New Testament, you will see that they were Judaizers. What do you mean? Well, you remember Christ promised the disciples that uh, and, and commanded them that they should take the gospel into all the world and promised that they would have the spirit to do so. Now, he said, you wait in Jerusalem until the spirit comes. Don't go out until the spirit comes. So, okay, but then Acts chapter 2, the Spirit did come, day of Pentecost, and what happened? Peter preaches, staggeringly in his own eyes. He must have been amazed when he looked, when he went to bed that night, thinking, what's happened? He preached, and here he was, never preached before in his life, and he preached, and he saw 3,000 Jews converted. At least 3,000. And that wasn't the end of it. It went on. Chapter 4, chapter 5, you go on, you can preach it, and you'll find that these Jews are being converted in droves. But it doesn't last. They're driven out, and they have to go into Judea. And then, as Christ said, Judea, Samaria, 
and then the uttermost parts of the world. And by the time you get to Acts 10, where Peter is going to the Gentiles, Cornelius. Then you get to Acts chapter 16, and Paul is taking it into Europe. And lo and behold, it ends up in Bedford. Praise God it does. <laughs> but the point is, in the beginning, it was Jews that were being converted. You remember the trouble in Acts chapter 10, and again in Acts chapter 11, if you look at the passages, you'll see there were real debate in the early church. Hang on a minute. These people you're speaking to now are Gentiles. See, they're still thinking of the old covenant. Israel. But Christ has said, it's Israel, and then Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and everywhere. And they have to learn, and they learn very quickly, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, they learn very quickly that the gospel is not going to be contained in this new covenant, it's not going to be contained within Israel, but it's going to break out all over the world. But it was in that that sparked these teachers into action. They said no. No, no, no. That's all right. <laughs> but you must make sure that these Gentiles keep the law of Moses. That's what these teachers were saying, Judaizers. You must say to these Gentiles, yes, you can come to Christ. That's all very nice and very wonderful. Yes. But Paul hasn't told you the whole truth. The real truth is this. You come to Christ and you keep the law. Now, they majored on circumcision, okay? They also picked on what's known as dietary laws, food. Uh, but Paul won't have any of that. When he writes to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 3, he says to them, he says to the Galatians, don't buy into that, he said. They can say it's just circumcision, but I'm telling you, you can't pick and mix with the law. You can't choose. It's not a menu. You can't say, oh, yeah, I'll have that one, circumcision. No. You either buy the covenant or you don't. It's all or nothing, he says. All or nothing. James says the same. He writes to his hearers, and he writes to them, and he says, look, if they break one commandment, that's the lot. I don't know, Woolworths is gone now, isn't it? But when I was a boy, you could go to Woolworths and you could have pick and mix. Remember that? Two of them, three of those, four of them. You can't pick and mix with the law. All or nothing. <laughs> But these teachers were very effective teachers. I don't know what it was about them, whether it was their doctrine or their manner. Maybe they were very not. I don't know what it was, but they were very effective. In Galatians chapter 2, you will find a remarkable passage. You will find that Paul says that we were in Antioch and um, 
uh, Cephas, Peter, and uh, Barnabas were with me. In fact, Barnabas had fetched Paul up to Antioch to teach them. And they were getting on hunky-dory. Everything was wonderful. There were Jews and Gentiles being converted, and it was going like a house of fire. And some of these teachers came. And what happened? It wasn't long before people were buying in to their teaching. And two men in particular bought in. Peter, absolutely staggering after Acts chapter 10. Absolutely staggering. After his experience in Acts chapter 10 and verse 11, he buys into this. And so does Barnabas, godly Barnabas. They both buy into it. And what do they do? They stop meeting, eating with the Gentiles. Why? Because of these Judaizers. Now what does Paul do about that? He doesn't let friendship get in the way. He doesn't let personalities get in the way. He does the most embarrassing thing. I don't know how embarrassing you can think it. He stands up to Peter in public and Barnabas, in public, in public, and he says, you're wrong. Read it in Galatians 2. He lambasts him in public. What are you doing this for? And these Judaizers are now in Corinth. So you can see how Paul is so grievously upset about it, torn apart about it. Because he can see that it's not just a question of tinkering with the law. He knows what we should know. That Christ, by the parable of the wineskins, you remember the parable of the wineskins? Uh, you can't put new wine in old uh, wineskins. What he's teaching in that parable is not a pleasant little story for children. What he's saying there is there are two covenants. There's the old covenant, but that is worn out, he said. The writer of the Hebrews says it's obsolete. Chapter 8, verse 13. And what the gospel must not do is be confined and mixed with the old covenant. He's very clear about it. But that says, Paul, that's what these teachers are doing. And the end result, to cut it short, is that they are taking away from Christ... and into another gospel. My friend, if you want to see uh, a sort of a, a living example of what I'm talking about, I haven't time now this morning. Um, well, I have time, but I don't want to detain you all that long. But I could prove to you that uh, the Roman Catholic system is a direct fulfillment of this kind of teaching. It is salvation by works, observances, rituals. Um, it is also priestcraft. It stems from the fathers who went back to the old covenant. And it's the so much of the, the fulfillment of it. 
Paul could see this 2,000 years ago. He saw it at Corinth. He saw it in Galatia. He wrote the letter to the Galatians about this. The writer to the Hebrews wrote his letter about it to the Jews because they were going back to the Old Covenant. Paul wrote to the Philippians. You remember what he said to the Philippians? Beware of those dogs, he said. Not pleasant language. He's battling for the gospel, this man. He's battling for Christ. And he does it to the uh, Corinthians here. He uses some very strong words if you go through the passage. Uh, the, the word he uses in Galatia and in Galatians and in uh, Corinth, the Corinthians, chapter 2 in Galatians and chapter 11 in, in, um, in Corinthians, is sued Adelphoi. It's made up of two words, sued, sudes, sued, false, Adelphoi, brothers, sued Adelphoi. False brothers, and the false, and you'll see it in the chapter if you read down, I read it to you just now, words like masquerade. In uh, Galatians, he talks about sneaking in, crafty, clever, deceitful. Very strong words. These are not nice people. They may appear nice, but they have an agenda. And that agenda is to wean you away from Christ. So back to my illustration, he says, I betroth you as a pure virgin to Christ. And what do I feel? I see this ruination of all I stood for. And he stands against it. Now, why am I ever telling you this? You wanted something pleasant this morning, didn't you? Yeah, I'm sure you did. You know, when I prepare this I, in the week, I, I'm sort of full of it, and, and it, it means something to me. But when I'm sitting here a few minutes before we start, I think, why am I doing this? You know, that's what I think. So I'll tell you why I'm doing it, my friend. Uh, I've got four reasons. Be very brief, but here are the four reasons. One, we should be very glad, thankful to God, that God raised up a man like Paul not fearing friendship or personality, none of that getting in the way, but a man who stood resolutely for Christ and the gospel. I tell you this, my friend, if he had lost the battle at Galatia, if he had lost the battle at Corinth, we wouldn't be here this morning. We wouldn't have the gospel. We owe it under God to this man. Now, I don't know if you know this. Some of you will be aware of it. Um, but you can find it on the internet. There is a teaching abroad that Paul has taken the gospel and ruined it. And the gospel we have is the gospel according to Paul, and it's not the true gospel. Uh, He's taking it away from its Jewish origin. I don't know if you've met this teaching, but it's rampant, I'll tell you. It's absolute nonsense. Paul was not there uh, 
taking the gospel into Greek philosophy. That's not what he was doing. He was there standing against people, taking it back into the old covenant. That's what he was doing. John felt it. John chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given by Moses. Praise God it was. Yes, I quoted it this morning. But, but, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He didn't just say that was like put it on a calendar, you know. That's not a calendar text. That's a major statement of truth. Praise God that men like John saw it. If I forget to quote it, I was reading this morning, John 4, verse 1, John 4, verse 1. Test the spirits. Yeah. Watch out for them. They may be taking you away from Christ. Praise God that Paul stood up for it, the gospel. It cost him his life. It cost him his sleep. It cost him everything. But he stood for Christ and the gospel. That's my first point. My second application is this. Uh, I have to examine myself. Is there anything? I, I do a fair bit of teaching, uh, writing and audio work and preaching. And that. Am I in any way leading men away from Christ? I, I mustn't take it for granted that everything is, is hunky-dory. Am I in any way diminishing Christ? Am I taking any glory from him? Or is my ministry to point to Christ? whatever I do to uplift him. Now, that's what i got to say to myself. And I'm putting it to you, brother and sister. That's what you've got to say for yourself, too. The Old Testament, particularly, is very strong on thinking about the generation to come. I, I was reading the other day about David. I think he said something about, I, I want to do something he said for the next generation. Something like that. He, he's thinking of the children and the grandchildren. What are we going to leave behind us, my friend? The gospel or what? <laughs> is it Christ or is it Christ and? Is it the gospel or is it the gospel tarnished? Because if it's tarnished, it's no gospel. These are serious matters, my friend. And I'm asking myself about it. And I'm asking you. Third application is this. I am not Paul. No, I haven't got his discernment. He could see into the motive of these people. I, I, I'm not in that position. I don't want to try and read men's hearts. I can't read men's hearts. I have enough job of my own heart. I can only judge by what they write, uh, by what they say, you know, by what they do. I, I, I can't read their minds, their hearts. So I can't be uh, so absolutely dogmatic about this masquerading and this cheating and deceiving. But I will tell you this, without calling in their motive into question, I will tell you this. I have met this kind of law teaching face to face. And so have you. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever met the Hebrew Roots Movement? The Hebrew Roots Movement. I was introduced to it well, about nearly 20 years ago. Yeah, over 20 years ago. I was writing on Galatians at the time in my writing. 
And um, I said to the person who took me there, when I came out, she took me to this meeting, I said, I've been in Galatians again this afternoon. I met it in the face, in the raw. Feasts, f Sabbaths, uh, festivals, Jewish dates, Jewish everything, Jews, 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 everything. Hebrew roots, back to the old covenant. I'll tell you the result of that. I've seen it face to face. It is to take away from Christ. And it is to produce a gospel which is not a gospel at all. I tell you, if any of you are sucking into the Jewish roots movement, the Hebrew roots movement on the internet, watch out what you're playing with. I tell you, it's poison. Poison. I don't know if any of you um, saw the TV program on BBC this week. The Mormons are coming. Did you see it? No. I forced myself to watch it through. Um, I was sickened by it after a few minutes, but I, I, I forced myself to see it through. It concerned a group of young Mormons. Uh, who, uh, they come from all over the world and they go to a place in Lancashire and Clitheroe. This is the biggest temple, Mormon temple somewhere in this country anyway, or in Europe or something. And that's where they, for I don't know how many weeks, they get trained as missionaries, inverted commas. The Mormons are coming. The Judaizers are coming. The Judaizers are coming. It's law, 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 morning, noon, and night. How long can my hair be? The law says this. Who's the law? President Nelson in Utah. He tells them how long their hair can be, what kind of haircut they can have, how long their skirts must be, how they can do this. They can go out, but they can go out with a boy and a girl and another boy. But they can't go out with a boy and a girl. You can't go out for a walk anywhere. You can't talk to anybody unless there's three of you or five of you with an odd number of boys and girls. You can see the reason why. I can see what they're doing. Have they never read in Colossians that you can restrain behavior by uh, laws, but that won't affect the heart? You can't make men and women Christians or pure or whatever it is by changing the law. Mormons are coming. Watch out. They're trying to earn their salvation. They did mention Jesus, and there was a picture of Jesus nearly everywhere, but they said nothing about the blood and righteousness of Christ in the whole hour. I never heard a word of it. The Mormons are coming. I've checked out the Jehovah's Witness hymn book. A thousand hymns, I've told you before. I think I found six with the name Christ in it. I went to one of their services. I'm not recommending it. I was there all the time and I never heard Christ mentioned once. If there had been questions afterwards, I hope I would have had the courage to stand up. I think I've told you this. And I'd say, what a strange thing. I've been here this morning for an hour and a half. And uh, I read in 1 Corinthians 2 that Paul said, I'm determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I haven't heard Jesus Christ mentioned once. Can you tell me the difference? Why? You don't mention Christ at all. Watch out, the Judaizers are coming. But my friend, it gets closer to home. 
I remember a few years back, an evangelical chapel near here, uh, an evangelical preacher here uh, in this town, uh, famous, I would say, in this town, certainly very well known. Uh, and I remember him preaching that Sunday, and, and he said something like this. He, he was talking about when he was a boy. In this setup, this young people setup, you know what I'm talking about if you've got your mind in gear, this setup that trains young people in this locality. And, and he said, we used to have a little chorus, he said, and he laughed at it. And the chorus was, if you want to be a fine Christian, I've forgotten the exact words, but you don't spit, you don't go to cinemas, and you don't go to dances or something. He, he laughed at it. He dismissed it. How stupid, he was saying, really, to have these laws, you know. It didn't. <laughs> what the man did not realize was he was shooting himself in the foot. Okay, they've dropped those rules, but they've set up a new set of rules. And in 50 years' time... Somebody will be saying, do you know what we used to do in 2023? And they will sing that chorus. What I'm saying to you, my friend, law teaching is in the air. I know it's not very nice what I'm saying, but it's in the air. And there are places in this town which are heavily built on law. Absolutely foundational to the church in their confession of faith. I say that. I know we're at the, most of us are at the end of our time here and we can't make much contribution. But my friend, it does matter if we stand for the gospel. You don't know what your testimony might mean. I urge you, I urge myself, if not you, don't yield on any point of the gospel. However nice the man is, however pleasant, however this, however that, if it takes me away from Christ, if it produces works as it were, trying or this or whatever, law stuff, none of it. I want Paul's atmosphere, Paul's attitude, rather, Paul's attention to detail here, his concern for the gospel. I might not be able to do much for Christ, but I want to hand on the torch, as it were, the baton, as pristine as I can. Paul could say, I have kept the faith. Yeah, and praise God he did. I hope I should say, well, I shan't say it, but I hope somebody can say it about me, at least he kept the faith. <laughs> he didn't do much, but at least he kept the faith. It matters, my friend. It matters. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. My friend, if we leave Christ, what is there? This is a word for the unbeliever, you know. There's only one gospel. I know there's thousands of gospels out there, but there's only one saving gospel, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Faith in him. You can't earn your salvation. It's just by absolute reliance upon a Redeemer who lived and died for sinners. And he's coming back. And I want to hear at the end, well done, good and faithful. Not successful. I hope it would be, but it, if it's not that, good and faithful servant. I hope you feel the same, my friend. I hope you feel the same.